Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. Created by Notation Capital, sponsored by Sapphire Ventures. You can find us online at notationcapital.com or back us on AngelList. Judith Elsia is a managing director and co-founder of WeatherGage Capital, which she co-founded in 2006. She was previously the managing principal at Knightsbridge Advisors, and before that, the CIO at the Kauffman Foundation, where she also founded the Kauffman Fellows Program. She's one of the most experienced venture LPs in the ecosystem, so we're thrilled to have her on Origins. She's also one of the few active LP bloggers at weathergagecapital.com, and you can find her on Twitter at J-B-E-L-S-E-A. Judith, we are super, super excited to have you. Welcome. Uh, welcome. Well, thank you. This is my first podcast, so Yay. good Lord. This is, <laughs> this is amazing. Thank you for honored. asking me. So I think, you know, I think to start what would be fantastic is uh, for you to just give us a very uh, brief background about yourself and, uh, and some of the firms that you've worked for and, and co-founded um, to give us a sense of, um, of where, you've, where you've been. So I have been in the investment business in various capacities for quite some time now, and that includes some gigs as a portfolio manager of public equities and, as you mentioned, a CIO of a foundation and now as one of uh, four co-founders of a VC and growth equity fund of funds called Weathergate Capital. So, um, you know, going back to, you know, my time at, at the Kauffman Foundation, which I think is, is you know, probably more relevant for this discussion, right. you know, the time at the foundation was great for a number of reasons. And I got to help create what became a very sophisticated investment portfolio almost from scratch. And so we were allocating and deploying and growing that pool of capital. And, and that was fascinating work. And, and on top of that, the mission of the foundation was helping at-risk children and families. And it was also supporting entrepreneurship. So, so those sort of dual missions, which actually fit together pretty well, that was quite inspiring to me. Um, and as you mentioned, again, at the, at the Kauffman Foundation, I also got to be a, a co-creator of the Kauffman Fellows Program. And, and that program has alumni who have gone on to be wonderful contributors to the VC community. So the, the foundation was my first introduction to that, you know, arcane and, but I think potent world of venture capital and, and startups. Um, as I said, I'd been managing public equities for a while and before going to the foundation. And so um, I really had not had any previous exposure to startups at all. And right. the foundation was the, the first place that I, 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 you know, became acquainted with, with that, that part of the world. So I left the foundation after about eight years, um, really good run there, and a, a very good tailwind of a bull market and multiple asset classes. So there's nothing like, you know, quitting while you're ahead. But about and, what year was that? Just to give us yeah, a reference was, point for what was happening was in the markets. That was 2001. Okay. So uh, I guess if you think about venture, it wasn't exactly the top of the market. It was very close to very that. Close. But, but And that's actually not why I left. But, um, but So you were there through the craziness the of, the, of the 90s. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I, I got to the foundation in 1993. And so some of it had just sort of begun. And again, we were, we were assembling the portfolio from scratch, so we were spending a lot more time on the places, the asset classes where we could, you know, deploy a lot of assets quickly. So that's generally on, you know, fixed income and public equity side. But, but we were also, you know, building our, our venture and our private equity portfolio all at the same time. So it was, you know, it was a lot of work. But I, but I left um, the foundation after eight years, and, and in late 2006, my three co-founders and I set up WeatherGate capital. We are now, hard to believe, on our fourth VC and growth equity fund of funds, and we have like $960 million under management. So, uh, so far, so good, I guess. Um, amazing. So to go back to Kauffman Foundation for a second, mm -hmm. when you got there, was there, uh, was there any venture portfolio at all? And 
And how did you begin to decide, um, one, to, to do it and then to build a portfolio um, at an organization that maybe didn't have a venture or technology investing practice? Mm-hmm. There was a little bit of venture there, and most of that that was there had been done by uh, the Kaufman's, uh, the foundation's benefactor, Ewing Marion Kaufman. And so there was some healthcare-related stuff because that was the provenance of his company mm-hmm. um, and his background. And, you know, kind um it looked a little bit like what you would see from high net worth individuals right now, a little bit idiosyncratic. Right. Uh, you know, like a friend told a friend that you should look at this fund. And so, you know, there was some, there was some of that, but it was, you know, obviously not at scale. Um, and so, you know, how do you get venture into your portfolio? Well, you know, you start with an, a- an asset allocation. And so we had to put that together. And, you know, we had a really good, you know, board and, and management team at the foundation at the time and, and an investment committee at the time. So I don't want you to think that I was just sort of out there, you know, spinning on my own. Sure. There were <laughs> lots, lots of good people around us, you know. But we were trying to do a whole lot of, you know, all at once and, and but yet yeah, be sensible about it. So we, you know, developed an asset allocation and we began to hire managers to fit into those slots. Venture was, you know, something that we didn't work on you know, 100% of our time and didn't do it first. But it actually came relatively early in the evolution of the portfolio because of the mission of the foundation, which was, you know, sort of the care and feeding of entrepreneurship. You know, how do we create more entrepreneurs who will create more economic opportunity for Mm. both themselves and other people? And venture capital being, you know, a, a source of capital to entrepreneurs, we wanted to try to push that along in ways that we could. And so, oddly enough, one of the first things we did with our venture portfolio was to try to um, um, commit capital behind venture firms that weren't necessarily all Silicon Valley firms. Mm-hmm. So they were geographically diversified, and mm-hmm. some of them were seed stage. Mm-hmm. So we sort other large programs probably wouldn't start with that, mm. you know, but we did because of the mission of the foundation. How do you, how do you, you said that uh, the mission behind entrepreneurship and supporting uh, kids and children were inextricably linked in some way. How do you, how do you, um, how do you see that? Well, my link, my interpretation of the link is is economic opportunity. Mm. And so if you believe that entrepreneurs, you know, are the the primary job creators and sources of innovation in, in, in a society, then you'd want to have more of those people. And if you have more of those people, more economic opportunity is created and, you know, that should raise... Yeah standard of living for for everyone of course you know not everything is evenly distributed but it's it's not a bad place to spend some time and money so jumping forward in time a little bit to uh Mm -hmm. the creation of weather gauge um what was the what was the sort of tipping point for you where you decided you know you had to start your own firm was it that there was a a point of view that wasn't represented in the market or a thesis that you, you believed in that you weren't seeing out there or, or what came together that made you feel like I have to do this. And I would, and I would also, I would add to that, like why after focusing on lots of different asset classes over the course of your career, did you decide that um, weather gauge would focus entirely on, on venture capital? Mm hmm. Well, let me just tell you, I'll tell you what interests me about venture, which, you know, informs the the transition, I think. So, you know, as I mentioned, I used to run, you know, public equity portfolios. And after a while, I tell you, it was, you know, hard to feel good about your job if you had to spend time wondering if IBM was going to, you know, miss or beat earnings by a penny. Right, right. right. Um, So, you know, once I became acquainted with a startup endeavor and with, you know, the, the venture aspects of that, you know, the, the whole activity is just so much more interesting and, and potentially rewarding. You know, entrepreneurs are putting it on the line every day. 
you know, they're creating new stuff that, you know, ranges from the ridiculous to the sublime. And some of it makes our lives better and different in very material ways and often really unexpected ways. So, I mean, I think, you know, this is a little bit of a digression, but look at Uber as an, as an example of this. You know, who knew that the limo and taxi business needed to be disrupted? You know, who knew you could even do that, mm. given it's such a highly regulated business? And, you know, who knew that it would create an economic opportunity for so many different kinds of people in so many places? And who knew it was going to change the automobile industry and the insurance industry and probably accelerate the development and deployment of self-driving cars? I mean, it, it just goes on and on. You know, the shape of the cities, notion of public transportation. You know, I grant you that not every startup has an Uber scale impact like that. And, you know, frankly, Uber didn't realize it when, you know, right. Uber was maybe. But... Really, most large company incumbents are worried about missing earnings by a penny or how many shares to, you know, to buy back next quarter. But entrepreneurs are working on the stuff that really pushes society forward, in my view. And, and that's, that's a very exciting thing to be next to. Uh, and sometimes they fail. Most of the time they fail, but sometimes they succeed. But, you know, in every case, you have to honor the struggle. Mm. So... You know, if you think about it from an investment point of view, there's actually money to be made when investors and, and entrepreneurs get it right. Mm. And this is why VC is such an interesting category of investments for, for me personally is, you know, invest, especially right now, because investing in young private companies is nearly the, o nearly the only way to get exposure to a current renaissance of innovation that's happening both in IT and life sciences. This is the only place it happens to, you know, to any material yeah. degree. So I think there's a, a good opportunity to make investment returns in addition to the, the intellectual stimulation that for me never goes away. So as for WeatherGage, well, um, my partners largely agree with me right. on this, right? So we, right? But we are accidental entrepreneurs. And we said to ourselves, well... Um, and this was late 2006, does the world, we really like this team. We'd like to keep the band together. We were right. extremely well calibrated as a team and enjoyed working together, but does the world need another fund of funds? And so we did some due diligence on ourselves, yeah. and we talked to a lot of our LPs. We talked to the GPs we backed, and we simply asked that question. You know, is, you know, if we did that, you know, what would you think and what's your mm. advice? Mm. Would you support us? And we were, um, you know, amazed and very, you know, gratified to hear that, you know, pretty much everyone said, yeah, you guys should do this. Right. And we will support you. And that's how we, that's how WeatherGage got formed. And it didn't take very long at all yeah. to, to, to put that together. So... We've been, we've been very, very lucky. Very lucky. What was the initial strategy thesis plan for the first weather gauge fund in 2006? So the initial plan was, <laughs> was to back really great VCs. Right, who would, right. Would back really great entrepreneurs. Right. And that's pretty much the same plan. Yeah. The strategy has evolved a little bit, right? So we were always going to be investing in venture. It was also always going to have a very healthy component of early stage venture. We were also going to do some growth. We were also always going to invest in IT funds. And we were, all, for the most part, going to have exposure to life sciences funds. And we were going to be predominantly U.S. That's pretty much the way. It is turned out, but with some sort of different expressions of those um, categories. So here's one that you know might be interesting to you with respect to our approach. Back in the day, the game was, you know, the, the, the meme was there's only, you know, let's say a dozen right. companies that that you know any return in any given vintage year from venture and you know let's say a dozen VC firms who had access to the dozen companies that matter and if you weren't in those VC, VC firms then you might as well go home mm. right because everybody else didn't do very well 
And we played that game pretty well for quite some time. Um, my partners and I, and you know, as Weather Gauge, and then I mean, prior to Weather Gauge, and right. um, working together. And but in 2006, we began to see something very fundamental that was changing in the venture industry, and that really related to an observation about innovation and a collapse in the cost of startup company. So, you know, we've seen wave upon wave of innovation amplifying each other and providing investors an opportunity set that's really orders of magnitude larger and more diverse than anything we've seen before. And all of these innovations that have occurred, you know, around social and mobile and cloud and the golden age of software and the collapse in compute costs and you know, now the availability of massive quantities of data. All of these things have worked in favor of the entrepreneur in that many of these factors have combined to collapse the cost of starting a company and, the t- and shorten the time to get to product market fit. So, and oh, by the way, all of these factors have also combined to produce market opportunities that are, you know, at a scale not contemplated 20 years ago right. or maybe not even years ago. So around 2005 or 2006, it seemed that something to us that something fundamentally different was going on. And we made a number of observations that ultimately influenced the shape of our practice. So here they are. One, we could see that these massively disruptive technologies and the promise of big markets were attracting a whole new generation of entrepreneurs, you know, that really hadn't been involved with companies before. First time entrepreneurs really young entrepreneurs, kind of coming out of nowhere. Mm. And this new generation of founders were starting companies and getting to product market fit on really trivial amounts of money. You know, I, I listened to your, your podcast with Naval, and he was talking yeah, about yeah. You know, his experience back in the, yeah. in the late 90s, about you know, needing $8 million to get a website. <laughs> right. Up, yeah, right? it's amazing. It was just like that. <laughs> it, and, you know, buying your own servers mm-hmm. and hosting, you know, it was just like that. And 2005 and 2006, we could see really interesting entrepreneurs, you know, getting to that point on a couple hundred thousand dollars. Amazing, right? And these entrepreneurs had a whole different mindset about VC. They were certainly not in awe of them, didn't really know them. And if they did, they probably didn't have a very high opinion of them. And these new founders mostly felt that they just really actually didn't need the aggro or the dilution that came with a big VC check. For the VC point of view, and I'm heavily generalizing here because some, you know, some VCs at the at the you know elite firms at the time understood this and got it and played it well, but a whole lot of them at the time neither had the time nor the interest in writing a seed state check. Right. Just didn't care. And then the last part was really crucial, which is these new founders were almost completely outside the VC's normal network. So they were nearly blind to these people. They didn't know who these founders were. So here we are, you know, being one step removed from this whole process as a fund of funds and an investor in funds. So what's to be done? We see the economic opportunity, but we see that the venture industry is not matched to it, to address it. Right. So could we find managers... Could we find a way to invest behind this yeah. and find managers who had expertise that was relevant and valuable to the founders, who at least had a semblance of a track record, and who were willing to raise small pools of capital that were right size for the opportunities? So that wasn't so easy, right? right? Uh, how, now, how, did, seems, how did you find some of those founders? Well, you know what? Or sorry, just, VCs. Yeah, yeah, we just we just you know networked the heck out of it, right? And we found a few managers who checked all these boxes and who had already started investing in these seed opportunities. Right. Mm-hmm. So Ma- you know, mainly, have, mainly as angels? Yeah, right. mostly they were angel records, right. right? You know, a couple of them had a little bit of institutional backing, but not really. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the category didn't even have a name at the time. We now know it as micro VC, right. but it didn't even have a name. So this is an example and, and we started to invest behind them, and, you know, we've had really good luck with that. So, but this is an example of an evolution in our weather gauge strategy, which was to see this opportunity and then create exposure to it. 
via these micro VC funds. So we moved away from the notion that you only had to be in the top 10 funds right. mm. to say, yeah, some of those funds are still relevant and they've tended their franchise as well, but there's an opportunity here for other people to do really good work in a different you know, form factor. And we want to be with those people because they're hooked up with the entrepreneurs who matter today. Who are some of the early uh, who are some of the early VCs that fit that profile in like 06, 07, 08? And um, and what initially got you really excited about them other than the fact that maybe they had made some good angel investments? Well, you know, the uh, I think the the early practitioners are are you know well known. They're you know the Mike Maples in, at at Floodgate and Iden Sincut at Felicis and Steve Anderson at Baseline and um, you probably throw Chris Chris Saka there, although he did it sort of in a different way, mm. but obviously enormously um, mm. uh, successful with that. Um, and so there, you know, there were a handful of these guys and. Um, and they had, you know, had different, not all of them had had VC experience, but some of them had had a little bit. Mm. Uh, and so there was, but they weren't porting track records from these places. They just had been inside a firm, you know, maybe even for a year or so. Right. And not even at a GP level. Right. So they'd seen a little bit of how, mm. how those firms worked, but mostly what they were doing was, you know, demonstrating, you know, knowledge of this on particular set of entrepreneurs and demonstrating value to these entrepreneurs and really understanding at a pretty deep level what these entrepreneurs were trying to do and, and helping at exactly the right time. So while these, these, you know, pioneers of micro VC, you wouldn't really say that they had a, you know, they were at that time, you know, what we call a full stack VC, you know, nobody had any services they'd built out. There was nothing, but, you know, some relevancy to the entrepreneur and a willingness to work as hard as the founder. Right. And we still solve for that today, by the way. Um, but that's, that's really what they had is they were well networked and well regarded with this set of entrepreneurs. So fast forward a little bit to, to, to today. I mean, there's hundreds of micro VC funds now. How do you think about that category today compared to, you know, say 2007, 2008, when you were first getting going. And how do you think about evaluating the managers at those firms or potentially firms that you might invest with for the first time today compared to, mm -hmm. you know, 2006, 2007? Right. So, um, the managers back then enjoyed a number of, of tailwinds. And one is there was, you know, less competition for these deals. Yep. The valuations were super low. Um, the aqua hire machine was, you know, it didn't start, you know, with a dial set at 11, but the dial got set to 11, right. you know, a few years later. Right. And so, you know, a lot of investments that, you know, may or may not have grown up to anything. Actually, we're taking, you know, we're taken out at pretty good multiples or at least break even. Uh, they were, you know, they did put down a lot of, of, of bets and some of those bets paid off in a huge way. Um, I was just thinking of uh, something I read about Felicis the other day. They've had, I think, 11 uh, billion dollar company of their companies wow. have been sold for over a billion, wow. yeah. and each one of their their GPs have had a billion dollar exit. I mean that's pretty remarkable right. when you think about it, right? So anyway, but but you know back to back to what we you know sort of the tailwinds that were in place back at this that, that came in place back at this time. Um, those were those were all good facts. So, but if you roll forward today, you know. Many, many of those tailwinds are, are, are gone or not blowing at, at a velocity that they were. And one of is that, you know, valuations are higher for micro VC now and, and for seed stage. And while I think those are coming down and, come, and valuations are coming down across the board for most companies, 
companies, certainly they are not at the level they were back in you know, 2006, 2008, 2010 even. Right. Uh, the second thing is, is the aquahires have really slowed down um, for the last, say, three years. Um, I think those are, I think M&A is coming back to venture. So I think that's going to, you know, uh, that's going to be, that trend is going to, to reassert itself, right. but probably not to the extent that it was back then. And the third thing is, is there's, you're right, the, you know, this is a really noisy space. So when we evaluate managers here, you know, in, in today's environment, you know, it's one, you know, we have what we hope are, is some beachfront property in, in so-called micro, micro VC, right? So we will, and, and we also run a very concentrated portfolio in general. So micro VC is only a portion of what we do. Right. We happen to be you know, because we were sort of pioneers of this space, we happen to be known for it. But of course, it's just a portion of, of our portfolio. So if for some reason we thought that micro VC was not and, and seed stage investing was not going to, you know, offer a good risk return profile for our funds, we just wouldn't do it anymore. We just happen to think it does. Right. And, and the other reason we also like micro VC is, you know, it's really the only way to get, you know, sort of reliable seed stage exposure because a lot of the traditional, you know, branded VCs have raised much bigger funds and they're much more stage agnostic than they used to be. So, you know, if you think that early stage is attractive and as we do, and, and that's the, you know, place where you make your, your, your largest multiples, then you know we do need to to stay with the smaller funds that will invest in the seed area, which leads us again you know to micro VC. So I would say that now we are not looking for characteristics that are really any different from what they were, you know, ten years ago. Um, we do have you know an established list, but we will you know add and subtract from it as as necessary. But the characteristics that we're looking for in in managers are the same that we look looked at back in the day and the same that we look at now and apply to you know our life sciences our growth managers and that starts with understanding how the VC is perceived by founders and entrepreneurs mm-hmm. how do you like diligence and understand the inner working like we've talked about a lot of these Firms getting going as individuals. Mm-hmm. So Mike Mabels, I like Sinkat. Um, how do you, when it's a new firm, how do you think about the firm as a partnership? How do you understand the inner workings of that partnership? How do you evaluate that? Um, because you know these partnerships are so intimate. Like, how do you actually get to the the bottom of it, so to speak? Yeah. Well, um, when you, you know, think about, you know, sort of our position in the ecosystem, it's very analogous to your position in the ecosystem. How do you evaluate founding teams? Right. And you do that by, you know, a, a process of triangulation and a process of, you know, what you hope are, you know, some pattern recognition skills that have been developed over multiple observations. And so you spend a lot of time talking talking to the partners, talking to them separately, talking to them together, talking to their friends and their co-investors, and maybe, you know, if they've, you know, raised a fund talking to their other LPs. Uh, looking at that, you know, looking at their portfolio, um, understanding the decision-making process, and just sort of generally spending time with them and seeing how they interact. You know, the other thing that, and that's just sort of the the nuts and bolts of the venture business and the due diligence process, is trying to form this mosaic that approximates reality mm. <laughs> of the situation, but. I'll tell you one of the, and and right now in the current environment, you know, we see, you know, what we call pickup teams, somebody who's, you know, been at one firm and another person's been at another firm and they leave and they form another firm. And sometimes there's a really good reason why that happens and it totally makes sense that they would want to do that. But sometimes 
it doesn't make any sense at all. Right. It's just like and two free agents kind of. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Right. And it could work out well. Right. But but there's no, you know, sort of root or, you know, sort of shared experience that appears to be driving them along other than they just like to raise a fund. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there is one thing, you know, sort of in evaluating the team process, of course, we're looking for you know, having each one of the team members be relevant with the entrepreneurs who matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, and I've got a whole riff on that because mm-hmm. it's, it's so critical, you know, to the, to, to the success of people like you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the other, you know, really mundane thing is when, when these partnerships don't work out, it's usually because something is wrong with the distribution of in- economics internally. Mm-hmm. Oh. And... You don't see it so much in young firms because they t- have a tendency to come with a, um, you know, a, a notion that they want everything to be equally distributed. Right. But you certainly do see it in the more established firms where, um, you know, maybe founders stay around too long. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe they, you know, created the track record, but maybe hadn't been active for quite some time yet. The economics are reflecting, you know, the old track right. record and not necessarily who's, you know, who has the leg drive today. Uh, and it takes, so, you know, it usually takes so long for, a, you know, um, a VC to, you know, to put points on the board, material points on the board that, you know, um, these economics have a tendency not to be reset all that often. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when, how do you know which teams to back? Um, well, a lot of it comes from, you know, calibrating with entrepreneurs, but a lot of it also comes from, you know, do they have the processes in place that will help, you know, help them succeed, improve their odds of success, and are the economics internally aligned that, you know, should enhance success and teamwork going forward? How do you how do you split responsibilities and um, and approach the partnership and even manage conflict at at Weathergate itself? So, um, at, you know, at Weathergate, we're a, a reasonably small team. Right. Senior, we have analytical support, but generally, senior people at Weathergate do all the due diligence. So, um, but we're, you know, all utility players. And so we don't really have, you know, really any niches. I guess I've spent most time on the most time of all of us on micro VC. So I guess you would say that is a niche, but, but, you know, all of us will, you know, can work, can and and do work on pretty much every deal. Right. Um, Although I assume there's one person that's kind of, point or sits on the board yeah. for the fund. Is that right? Yeah. 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 It usually turns out that way, but some of the times it's just more about, you know, affinity with the GP. Right. Then right. it is, you know, necessarily, you know, saying, you know, giving, you know, assigning ourselves to someone, right? It's who, who you know, who really has a lot of enthusiasm for this project. Right. And, and that's, that's tricky because we all usually end up with all being quite enthusiastic <laughs> about because our process works in, you know, this sort of, you know, create a due diligence plan, look for the fatal flaw fast. You know, um, if we don't find the fatal flaw, you know, fast, we, you know, go to yet another level of due diligence, et cetera. And all of us are, are, are making those calls, writing up those notes, talking about, you know, what we've heard. You know, anything can fall out of process at any point in time. So it's mm-hmm. highly iterative. But once we, once we get to a place where we've resolved all the objections that have been, you know, made during this process, then, you know, we're in full agreement that we're going to do this. So I can only think of maybe one or two cases where one of us we're leaning much more favorably to doing something and the mm. other two just no we just we just simply don't get it mm. and we didn't do it mm. so it never really came up for a vote at all mm. but it did but there were you know there were clearly people who were weighting factors in a different way vcs and founders often talk about like you know it's not just about the firm 
that you're approaching, but it's also finding the champion in the firm or the GP mm -hmm. in the firm that's going to fall in love with the founder and the company and the opportunity. How important do you think it is for VCs to find the right partner in, you know, either Weather Gauge or other firms? Mm -hmm. Is it similar? Like, do you think there's a one-to-one -one map there? I do, but I think it depends on the size of the organization, mm. right? I mean, I think it, it's analogous because, you know, if you don't have a sponsor, even in a small organization, you know, it's, not, it's just not going to go forward anyway, right? But I think in a big organization, it's even more important mm. because, you know, if a VC is taking, you know, meetings with a, you know, a, a, you know, a lower ranked an, you know, analyst at an endowment fund, you know, that person may not have the juice to elevate an opportunity. If they have a good process, if that organization has a good process, then, you know, those opportunities will be given a fair look by, by the decision makers. But not all every organization has a good process for uh, prosecuting, you know, new VC opportunities, let's say. So I think it is, you know, quite important that at some point in time that the VC is somehow hooked up with a decision maker in each, each of these organizations. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, speaking of process, the, uh, the word on the street is that WeatherGage has a very robust analytical approach to sort of quantitatively evaluating funds past performance. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and, and how much weight you give that, that part of the process in your, in your evaluation? Mm hmm. So we like, you know, like startups, we use technology as a force multiplier. Mm -hmm. So we developed internally a tool called WeatherVane. And WeatherVane does hoover up a fair amount of data from funds who visit us. And obviously, we have the funds that we've the right. data from the funds we've invested in, right? right? But, but but the funds who visit us, they are kind enough to provide us with with data, and from that, we we produce uh, a, a fair amount of of you know histograms and and quartile analysis, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and our and our universe is is pretty darn robust at this point, right? So it's a very it's a very large set of data that we're looking at for VCs, and so. One of the ways that we level set opportunities, and this goes back to, do you have a good process you know, for making a decision? And so uh, one of the things we use WeatherVane for is to level set opportunities that come into our organization. And so you know, maybe I'll meet with someone or Courtney or Tim will meet with someone, but we're not all meeting with every group all at the same time. So how do you you know, level set these opportunities, at least in a quantitative way, to at least begin to understand the source of the, you know, the, you know, the strategy that the that the group is 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 uh, prosecuting, how they're executing on that strategy, and you know which partners are contributing to the strategy, and then we can compare that to every other fund who was investing over the exact same time period, and we do this on mm -hmm. a gross portfolio company level, so everybody is level set, right? Mm -hmm. And it's an important front end for us because we can see very quickly that, you know, let's just take an extreme pathology, that someone comes in and they result, they have a very good loss rate, they have a very low loss rate and a pretty high multiple versus the global average over the relevant time period. And then, you know, the next clip that we look at shows that it's pretty much one company mm -hmm. that's produced all of this right. return. And everything else is kind of meh. And so that would be kind of the one-hit one wonder pathology. And, and venture is a hit's business. But if you look at this one hit, you have to ask yourselves, can this group leverage that one hit into something broader and repeatable? And, and we can see that very quickly, again, because this is, you know, a data viz tool that's, you know, really powerful and, and, we can say to ourselves, we know other investors in that one company. We know that this particular group had very little to do with the success of this company. And, you know, they, they wrote a good coattail, mm -hmm. but we don't think it's repeatable right. and we don't, we don't think it's leverageable. Right. Um, 
Or we see something, you know, that surprises us to the upside. It's like, if we'd invested with those guys, they would have been accretive to us. How, how the heck did they do that? Right. You know? And, and then, then that level sets us and we want to know more. So the front end, you can get dinged on the front end via weather vane. Uh, <laughs> Watch out. Watch yeah, out for weather vane. Uh, it can happen. But the other thing that happens, guys, is, is we also see some really good, credible groups that show up very well in weather vane, but they're either not sufficiently differentiated from what we're doing mm. already mm. or not that much better than what we're doing. Right. So we have, like you guys, with, you know, with great founding teams, you have to say no more often than you say yes. So you view it as weather vane as a one important input, obviously, of many, yeah. but it's not, it's not like you don't have some it's not secret algorithm in there that's making decisions for you. <laughs> no, okay. no, not at all. Okay. And if it, you know, and if a group is, a, you know, if, if look at weather value, go, hmm, that's really interesting. You know, we don't have a lot of exposure to that, or we really like this team, or that's a great looking portfolio. We want to know more. Then the qualitative stuff starts clicking in. Right. But there's also, you know, again, this notion of portfolio construction and differentiating because. I think I mentioned we only have 17 active relationships. And if you run a concentrated portfolio, then, you know, you, in this business, you're always going to have some overlap in opportunity set. Right. But, you know, there has to be a really good reason why you're, you know, you're adding a name. Yeah. Right. So, you know, what a big part of our audience for this podcast um, is founders. Mm -hmm. So, um, and we've actually been pleasantly surprised by just how many founders are listening to this. I think for, for many founders, it's the first time they've actually heard from the LP community, mm -hmm. um, which is obviously a critical part of the ecosystem. How, how much should founders care about the LP base of the VCs that they work with? Mm -hmm. And if so... You know, what, what are some of the questions that they should be asking potentially when they're thinking about or potentially comparing different VCs to work with? Well, from the L, you know, just talking from the, you know, should founders know about a VC's LP base? I think most definitely they should care and know about this. And, and, and you're right. I don't think many founders even know enough to ask. Right. I don't think, you know, even today, many don't quite understand that VCs are, for the most part, you know, another kind of manager of other people's money. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, who are these other people? Well, you know, most founders don't know. So I think what you guys are doing is a really good service to the to the, you know, VC community, you know, the whole, you know, founder VC community, I think. But it is important for founders to understand this aspect of the relationship with their VCs. And why is that? Well, there are a few reasons. First is, you know, you clearly want to make sure, a founder wants to make sure that, you know, a fund's VC investor, that a VC investor has a stable access to, to capital. Yeah. And you can, you can infer that from knowing who their limited partners are. Um, second, you also want to know that your VC's LP base is generally populated by sensible, experienced investors who know and understand that this is, you know, this is a long-term business. There's a, you know, the business is a long-term in nature, so are the risks, and then there are also a lot of nuances of the VC business. So, you know, one would hope that one's VC fund would be populated by, you know, sensible, experienced investors who get it. And, and third, you know, the VCs may have LPs who would be strategically helpful to the company. Right. Um, now, sometimes they could be competitors to the company, too. But, you know, there, there are, you know, plenty of examples, especially now, of, you know, VCs having, you know, um, strategic LPs that, that, you know, do come into play. So I think this is this is all very important. There are, you know, a final related point. Um, it's probably not a bad idea for the founders to have a notion of some kind of non-obvious factors that can influence VC behavior down the road. 
So a good VC always wants to do what's right for the company. But a founder has to realize that the same VC also has to do what's right for his or her LPs. Right. <laughs> so most of the time these interests are aligned, but they're not always aligned. So, you know, an example would be, you know, a VC may be under pressure to produce an exit. Mm-hmm. And this may influence his or her advice with respect to, say, M&A opportunities for a company. Mm-hmm. Right? That, you know, so there can be some, you know, different sorts of, right. you know, pressures on on a VC that, that come from the LPs that, you know, maybe founders would want to be, at least be cognizant of. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, that all, that all makes a ton of sense. Um, I have one last question and then Alex, you can um, ask any other questions that come to mind. But this is a question that we've been uh, pretty consistently asking at least the last few uh, episodes. Um, the LP ecosystem from what we've seen over the past 18 months seems to be more diverse from a gender, race, ethnicity perspective, among others, um, than the VC or startup community. And so the question, you know, that we've been asking folks is, you know, do you, do you think this is the case, either through data or anecdotally? Um, why do you think that might be? And do, do you think there at some point will be a trickle-down effect into the venture and, you know, startup ecosystems? You know, I, I don't actually have the data. Yeah. But I will say that my impression is the same as yours. If I had to hypothesize about it, I would say, um, and I don't know the genesis of this, but I would say, you know, most investment firms, for instance, in endowment and foundations or at fund of funds, many of whom are populated by people from endowments and foundations, right? Um you know, there have always been more women involved in the investment offices of these places. Mm. Why that is, I'm not quite sure, but it's been true for as long as I can remember. Right. And so when you have a case like that, you have a tendency to hire, you know, people who look like that, right? Or at least, you know, be open to hiring, you know, a diverse set of people because a diverse set of people are already there. Yeah. How they got there, I don't know, but right. they've been there a long time, and I think you know that may be one of the reasons why you see, at least in VC on the LP side, you see a, a, certainly a lot of women, and I think you see a, a lot of different ethnic, ethnicities as well. On the VC side, I do think that you know some of this may be again, you know, the out the result of the origins of the VC industry, which was pretty much all guys, right? you know, and many of these guys had engineering backgrounds or technical backgrounds. And so they hired and invested in people who look just like them. This happens a lot. Yeah. Right. So this is a total broad generalization and, you know, not the whole story for sure. I do think change, things are changing finally. And, you know, and albeit way too slowly, but I do think people are waking up to the fact that many super talented people don't wear doggers. Right. Just don't. Right. And and they are not including those people, you know, on the front lines of investment decision making and getting the benefit of their networks and judgment, then, you know, they're just going to be operating with one hand high behind their back. Yep. Yep. So I think this is changing. I know in our portfolio, we have lots of firms that, that have women GPs for sure. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them are micro VC, by the way. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, the more the success they have and, the, you know, it's just not going to be such a rare thing anymore. And that's, you know, that's how, you, that's how the flywheel really starts to turn is people start having success, both as founders and as VCs. And it, you know, it doesn't look weird. Mm-hmm. In fact, it looks weird if you don't have them. Mm, yeah. But now, you know, there's just a deeper, richer understanding of, you know, the opportunity set that comes with having much more, uh, uh, you know, having a much wider aperture. Yeah. And that's just an alloyed good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank God for that. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, you you guys know it. Look at your practice. Mm-hmm. Right? 
you know, I think, and some of it may be generational too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I mean, your affiliation with women founders is, you know, pretty broad and pretty deep. You know, it probably doesn't strike you as odd that, you know, a women, uh, you know, a woman founding, founding team comes to visit you with a hell of a good idea. Mm-hmm. We hope more do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have anything? No, I think I think that's a, a good one to end on. We've we've taken a lot of your time, Judith. I enjoyed it very much, and I have to say that you know what you guys are doing at Notation, I think, is you know really important that people like you, you know, are in the ecosystem and you do get funded. You know, you have a very particular point of view. I think your backgrounds are you know extremely well suited to this endeavor. You're very focused. And you're very, you know, tied into a set of entrepreneurs who matter, and you're willing to work within a fall, you know, small fund form factor. Yeah. Right. It's, you know, all the stars are aligned for for you guys to do well, and and I think it's important for the ecosystem that you do do well. Mm. It makes it just a better and, and and richer opportunity set for investors like Weathergate. Thank you so much. Really you're appreciate it. Yeah, we you. will. Uh, we will, we will hopefully have proved that, uh, you know, five to seven years from now, or however long <laughs> well, it takes. But, you, know, well, yes. you know, there will be proof points prior yes, to that. Yes, that's true. That's but true. You're right. That's I mean, true. you know, you're, you're very founder friendly, and and I and I really appreciate. You know, you're super scrappy, but you're also very humble, and I think that's you know that's a winning formula in this business. We appreciate it, and we really appreciate you taking the time. And well, thanks um, for asking me anytime. And I think our uh, our listeners will will too. Cool. Hope so. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or on AngelList. We'd like to thank our friend Sapphire Ventures for sponsoring this debut series. Sapphire Ventures is a global venture capital firm that invests in growth stage technology companies as well as early stage venture firms across the technology landscape. Sapphire Ventures shares our desire to bring transparency and candor to the venture ecosystem. We're very grateful to be collaborating with them on this project. We'd also like to thank Ben Glowey, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound. Finally, we'd also like to thank our friends at Mattermark for helping us with distribution and making an amazing product. You should try it, mattermark.com.